All right. Let's do a recap before we get started here on the last movement of Ephesians. Last week, we finished the second to last movement. Um, we talked about, finished talking about the household code. We talked about how Paul has adapted his household code from the codes of the culture that he's in at that time. He does that in a couple different ways. First of all, he addresses the subordinates at all, the people that were subordinate in those households, the wives, the children, and the slaves. And in his instruction to them, he admonishes them to be active participants in uh, the new creation, living with their families as the new humanity. Um, not just out of obligation, but willingly submitting themselves to one another. And he redefines the foundations of how these families relate to each other by instructing the patriarchs to relate to all the subordinate people in their household out of self-giving love. Um, rather than using his power and position for his own benefit, the patriarch is instructed to be a source of life for those that are in his household. And we talked about the meaning of the word head in verse um, 23 and how it corresponds to savior or deliverer. And all of those people in the new creation household are to love each other in humility and submit themselves to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. So that's our recap from last week. Today, we're going to finish up the last movement and the closing of the whole letter to the Ephesians. And this last movement starts in chapter 6, verse 10, and goes through the end in verse 24. And you're all probably really familiar with this section of scripture. This is the armor of God. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, this might be like the 500th time you've heard a sermon on the armor of God, but it's always good. It's an amazing um, portion of scripture. So let's just go ahead and read through this before we start to um, get into it. There we go. It's hard for me to read it back there. It's small. Uh, finally, find strength in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that y'all have power to stand against the schemes of the slanderer. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Because of this, take up the armor of God, so that y'all have power to stand in resistance on the day of evil, and having fulfilled one's duty to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded y'all's loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of justice, and having tied y'all's feet with the good news of peace, in all situations, having taken up the shield of faith, by which y'all have power to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the spirit's sword, which is the word of God, with every prayer and petition, praying on every occasion in the spirit, and for this reason, staying alert with all endurance and petition for all the holy ones and for me, so that a word would be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the open secret of the good news on behalf of which I am an ambassador in chains, so that by it I might be bold as I am obligated to speak, so that y'all also might know how things are with me, what I'm doing. Tychicus will make everything known to y'all that beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, 
whom I sent to y'all for this reason, so that y'all might know how things are with us and that he might comfort y'all's hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and from Lord Jesus the Messiah. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Messiah with incorruptible love. Did you hear Paul there talking again about how he's the ambassador in chains, about how he's in prison for the gospel? You've heard him talk about that before. All right, so I'm sure you remember by now that the letter to the Ephesians is divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And in, toward the beginning of chapter 4, Paul starts, he uh, reminds us of an important theme. It's a threat to the unity of the new creation. And he describes it this way. It's in um, chapter 4, verse 14. He says that uh, the body, the body of Jesus, the church, it needs to be built up to maturity so that will no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people and by, the cra- by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So this word scheming here is an important theme. It's the Greek word methodeia, which is where we get our English word method. It's only used in this letter here in chapter 4 and in chapter 6. So do you see how it forms a bracket for the entire last half of the letter. The last half being so much of Paul's practical instruction of how we are to live our lives. It's an important theme. It's bracketing this whole second part. Standing against these schemes is a big part of our lives. And he's going to sum it up in a really powerful way here at the end of the letter. And I'm not going to so much today go into like all the individual pieces and what they mean and how you apply them and all of that. I'm going to talk about this in more general terms. Um, And what I want to highlight right from the get-go is something that we've talked. Oh no. A lot about before. And it's this time in which we live. You and I, all of us are living right here. We're living between the time of Jesus's resurrection and his return. And um, we've talked about this in terms of we live in the time of upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the end of this age, this age is coming to an end. And the beginning end of the age to come. And this is a really intense time. It's limited. Eventually it's going to be over. And whoever is going to be with us in eternity, that number is going to be sealed. And that's just done. And it's in this time that we have to be, uh, we have to remain vigilant. We have to be actively engaged if we're going to move forward and understand and discern the times and what the Spirit is doing in the times. This is like our, this is our battle zone. It's the age of grace. So we have to remain vigilant. In doing that, it's important to identify the enemy. So if we back up. We talk about this a lot. I mean, this is just like pop culture scripture in the church. We, we hear this a lot. Who is the enemy? It's important to keep this in mind. Who is it? Is it people? Verse 12 tells us right here that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It says that it's against these dark forces in the heavenly realm. They're identified here 
as the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Paul talked a lot about them in chapters 1 through 3, and he called them different names, but it's all the same general concept. And this word here, cosmic powers of darkness, for me, this really sums up these evil forces in the spiritual realms. This is a, probably one of the coolest Greek words I've encountered. It's cosmocratoris. It's a compound word. The first part being cosmo, meaning world, and the last part being krator, meaning to grab or hold. So these are the forces that are openly opposed to the reign and the rule of Jesus, the rightful king. And they seek to grab the cosmos from him, to seize it for themselves, to be God. That's such a description. It's almost like something from a Marvel movie. It's like they just want to grab the cosmos from him. And that's a summing up of this whole battle that's taking place. And remember that these rulers in the heavenly realm are manifested here on earth in these overarching, enormous um, scale societal, cultural trends, huge institutions, ideologies, governments, things like that. A lot of these things are so far removed um, from our everyday thinking because they're large scale and difficult to identify um, that often we just perceive them as reality. Just we perceive them sometimes as that's just the way things are. So that's how they manifest is on that high level. When I think about this, I think about the processes of history. You know how maybe a group of people or a government will start or create something but then it becomes its own thing. Like it starts this ball rolling that takes on a life of its own. And it's like it becomes its own entity, like its own persona. I always think of the specter of nuclear war when I think of this. Like people created that, but it is out of the box, man. And now it's its own thing. It's a force to be reckoned with and... It doesn't always feel like it's really under control of anyone because it's its own power that's going on there. So large scale, these dark forces seek to keep people separated from God and they seek to destroy all of God's good creation. Remember that Satan's uh, means the adversary. That's what that name means. This is so important to keep in mind. He's the adversary. So when it comes to human conflict, he's not for anyone. It's really easy when you're in a conflict with another human or another group of humans to vilify them and say, they, the Satan is on their side. He's empowering them. Don't get me wrong. There are good things and there are evil things in this world that people do. And that is true. But the, at the end of the day, Satan wants all of us to die apart from God. Even the people that you disagree with. And none of those people doing those evil things are beyond redemption at all. Like they, they need us and they need to hear that truth from us. So we have to keep our eyes on who is the real enemy. It's the adversary. And he does nothing. He wants nothing but to kill, steal, and destroy. He's not for one person or another. He just wants us all to die apart from God. And he is our common enemy. It's so extremely important to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
We have to keep the spiritual in mind. I think this is part of how we preserve the world with our saltiness, as we maintain the spiritual component and tell people, no, there is a source for evil that is apart from people that is in this spiritual realm. They made a really great point in this Ephesians class that just really struck me, is that it's that when a full materialist worldview, a view of the world that does not allow for any spiritual components, when that type of worldview takes hold, the only result is massively destructive war and death. If you cannot identify a source of evil apart from another human being, you are just going to kill that other human being. That is disastrous. That's exactly the kind of division, destruction, stealing, and killing that they are after. So we have to maintain that stance on the spiritual component of evil and know who our enemy is. That is part of the church's job. We have to do it. So as we start to talk about the armor, I think this is a really important point. It's not just about you as the individual. Um, And I don't want to discourage you from, and I've lived this in my life too, um, applying the armor for my own personal battles, fighting my own battles, often against myself, using the armor of God is a good thing, and we should all definitely do it. But I always want to take the opportunity to highlight the community of the new creation, the church, the body of Christ, all of us united together. So it's good for us to fight personally. It's also this armor is corporate for the body of Christ. Collectively, we are the body that wears this armor. And I always want to highlight this because I do feel like part of our cultural programming, part of our cultural ideology as Americans is rampant individualism, is to apply things to just myself. And anytime the Bible highlights the unity of the body, I want to hit on that. Remember, everything in this letter, all of the you that we take as individual is actually plural in Greek. It's all y'all are the body. And collectively, you wear the armor. So it's so vitally important that we are unified and that each person is playing their part in whatever part of the body they are so that we can actually properly wear this armor. One little note on a piece of the armor. Um, Some scholars say that um, this was patterned after, after a certain kind of shield. So you would hold the shield like this, and on this side it would be longer, and on this side it would be shorter. So if you're holding it in front of yourself, your own shield leaves you exposed on your left flank. It only protects over here. And that was done to encourage tightness in ranks because you were literally protected on your left flank by the extension on your brother's shield. You have to stay close to your brothers and sisters. Like, that's such a great representation of the importance of being a part of the body of Christ and being together and being unified. So, as you've seen so many times in Ephesians, um, Paul will often riff on the same analogy or the same illustration across multiple letters that he's written to different churches. And the armor of God is no different. You will also know that Paul will often pull from his Old Testament scriptures that he was steeped in 
that were just always on his mind that he was meditating on. They seem to just, they pour out of him as he gives instruction to these churches. And the armor of God's no different. So let's look at a few examples of other places in his letters where he talks about this. First of all, he talks about it here in Romans 13. Interestingly, he starts this whole chapter of Romans by talking about the powers. But here, instead of highlighting their corruption, he talks about them as something that can be a force for justice and order when it's done under God's direction. So in this case, he says to obey the laws. He says, pay your taxes and render whatever is due. He's telling them, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do all of this knowing that all of this, the old stuff is passing away and the new is coming. Which brings us here to verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Do you see how putting on the armor of light is being equated here with putting on Christ? You see how they're lined up here. To put on Christ is to submit to the work of the Spirit as he makes Christ's likeness come more alive in you. As he cultivates that Christ-like character in each of us, we increasingly put on Christ. We increasingly put on the armor of light as we become more like him in his character. Paul also mentions this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But since we are of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as sons and daughters of light, we stay awake. We're not sleeping. We're awake. We know what's happening. And we put on God's attributes as armor. We partake in the divine nature, and it becomes our armor, and we defeat spiritual powers of evil as we wear it. So many things to think on and meditate on in this section of scripture. So as I said before, Paul is definitely drawing on some Old Testament scriptures here. Also, Paul was well acquainted with Roman centurions and guards and soldiers because he wrote Ephesians and three other letters from prison while he was being imprisoned. And so I don't want to say that exclusively he only drew on the Old Testament, like he also could have been inspired by looking at these soldiers that were guarding him, but he definitely did draw on some Old Testament scripture here. Um, The armor is depicted there as well. So here is a graph with some different places in the Old Testament um, that draw on this uh, illustration of armor. And Isaiah 59 is a really cool one. Um, This is amazing. So the whole context of Isaiah 59 is exile. It is a lament. The prophet is lamenting that the people are in exile. And it's all about, the whole thing is all about how they cannot redeem themselves from this horrible mess that they're in. 
And he goes into these awesome descriptions of what it is like to be in exile, to be separated from God. He says that they grope along like someone that is blind. They can't see where they're going. They stumble at midday. Because they're separated from God, because they wouldn't faithfully maintain and participate in the covenant, it's almost like an act of decreation has come upon them. Remember when God spoke forth light, there came function and order, and it allowed for life to flourish. And now that these people are in exile and they're separated from God because of their sin and they're in this place of lostness, it's like it's so dark and the separation from God that creation has been decreated. They're groping about at midday. It's just a total mess. It says that they moan like doves because they look for justice. They look for God's justice, his upholding of justice, and there is nothing. There's none. It's an awful place to be. The cause is described in chapter 59, verse 12. The prophet says, Our wrongful acts have multiplied before you, and our sins have testified against us. And that's why we're in exile. And that is the story that we've heard over and over again. That's the story that the Old Testament tells us, that people were apart from God, that they were lost. This is why they were in exile. They had turned from the Lord and their sin. And then we get down into this part here. So it says that the Lord saw, he looks on them, the exiles, and he sees that there is no justice and it was displeasing to him. And when he looks, he looks to find someone to intercede, someone to intercede. Will anyone intercede on the behalf of this nation? Will anyone intercede on behalf of all of humanity? And there's no one. There's no one that can save them. There's no one that can stand in the gap and intercede for them because they've all fallen short because all of humanity has fallen. So he sees this, that there was no one. He was astonished that there was no intercessor. So his own arm accomplished salvation for himself. The theme of the arm of the Lord is so powerful in the Exodus story that with his strong arm, his outstretched arm and his hand, he delivers his people from captivity to Pharaoh and captivity to the Egyptian gods. He delivers them and brings out a people for himself. And this theme of his arm is so strong there. This exile situation that's being written about here in Isaiah is one in a long list of indicators that all of humanity needs a new exile, or they need a new exodus from their exile. And that's what Jesus brought about. He brought about the new exodus that people go through, and they can be reunited and reconciled back to their God. And uh, so that's what's being drawn on here. That's what's happening. And at the end, um, well, so God here, let's just read through this part. He accomplished salvation for himself, and his own righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness. He puts on faithfulness to what he said in his covenant. He does right by his own covenant and his promises. He puts that on as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on garments of recompense as clothing. And he wrapped himself in a garment of passion. (laughs) 
What an illustration. Yahweh wrapping himself in a garment of passion to out to extend his strong arm and deliver his people. And at the end of this chapter, it says that a redeemer will come. A redeemer will come to Zion, and that redeemer will also come to all of humanity. And, and that's Jesus. There is this new exodus, this new deliverance. That is part of what's being echoed here in Ephesians 6. We are given God's own armor, this armor that he wore, He's given to us his divine attributes. He's recreated to us so that we can participate in the divine nature. And we can partner with him wearing this armor to defeat our common enemy. Our enemy is God's enemy. It is the same. That is so amazing to me. And um, Isaiah 11 highlights this in a slightly different way. And I just want to read uh, how Isaiah 11 starts, because this is about Jesus. So we've seen Yahweh, God himself, portrayed as wearing this armor in the defeat of his enemies. Now, this is what it looks like on Jesus. It starts out, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. All of that leveling that happened to Israel that God did because of their unfaithfulness. So now they're a stump. They've been cut down. But there's this shoot. The shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor." And decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And that brings us here to verse 5. And righteousness is a belt around his waist. And truthfulness a belt of his loins. So this is our Messiah pictured wearing this armor. And Paul pulls from both of these Old Testament passages, as well as these others here. There's in chapter 49, 52. And then the Wisdom of Solomon is an extra biblical book. Um, It's writing from um, the Second Temple Jews. And they riff on this same illustration of armor. So Paul pulls from these Old Testament passages And he applies this to the new humanity, to the church. Um, This is such a powerful illustration. I can't help but think of David when he was going into battle and he tried to wear Saul's armor and it wouldn't fit and it just didn't work. And before we were in Jesus, this armor didn't fit. It just wouldn't work. But when we're reborn, he, re, he knits us together in a new way. We're recreated, and now it fits perfectly. It fits perfectly. We wear God's very own armor in our battle against the enemy. God wore it himself and defeated his enemies to bring about this new exodus. Jesus Christ, our Savior, wore it while he walked this earth, and he defeated our enemies. And now we wear it. And the way has been paved for us to also defeat our own enemies. It's like this beautiful legacy picture. It's like this armor is an heirloom that's been handed down from a father to the son. And now we as co-heirs and as brothers of Jesus receive it as well. 
What an invitation to be a part of what the family does. If that is not a reinstitution into our original purpose to partner with God, I don't know what it is. It's an incredible invitation to be united to him and to partner with him and what he's doing in the world. It worked for him. It's going to work for us as well. So I really struggled with how to end this whole thing. (laughs) Um, There are so many awesome and incredible concepts in Ephesians. And I've spent this whole year so far, most of my study and my meditation for scripture has been on these six pages of the Bible. And I am just totally blown away. Like it's, it's, it's never going to be done with me. Just what I've learned this year. And as I continue, like it, it's amazing to me. Like God's word is just so incredible. So I struggled to decide on what like final things to end as a takeaway, but this is what I ended up landing on. Because as I took this class, this was the thing that really hit me so much so that I preached on it before I did this full series. And it really continues to stick with me. And I had kind of heard it before, but you know how you hear things and you hear things and you hear things, and then you receive them by revelation, and all of a sudden it becomes experientially real to you. I think that's what happened to me. <laughs> so two words to focus on here. Identity and reality. These are so important. You are not your earthly status. That is not your identity. That is not who you are. This is you. That is you. Seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus, ruling and reigning with him. You are not your latest success or your latest failure. That is not who you are. You are seated in the heavenly realm with the risen Jesus, ruling and reigning. You aren't trying to become someone different. You are increasingly acting as you truly are according to your real identity in Jesus. That is who you are. And as you continue to submit to the spirit, that is just going to come out of you. Keep your eyes focused on that identity. The second thing is that reality. Reality is more than what we see with our physical eyes. This is our reality. This whole picture of the apocalypse that Paul had about the spiritual realm that heaven and earth are one, that old is passing away, and that the new is coming. And our lives are a declaration of that truth. There's going to be a fulfillment of new creation, a a new creation of all things that we do see with our eyes that's going to be a completion. But at the same time, we're declaring that right now. And we're beginning to live in that now. We don't wait. We live like Jesus now through the spirit. The real enemy has been identified. Our lives are a declaration of all of this truth. And the more we see everything through this, it is a crazy thing to believe this stuff. But if you can wake up every morning and say, this is just what I believe. This is what I believe. And if you can try to see everything I pray for myself to help me to see everything through this, through this identity and through this reality. And I think if we can do that, we'll become more and more sensitive to the spirit, 
to how he's guiding us, we'll discern the times and um, what needs to happen, what the Lord is saying. And in that, I think we're going to see more and more of those greater things that the Bible talks about. Greater things will you do in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've brought us into your family and that you have passed down to us this awesome family heirloom of armor. So we choose to put that on. We choose to believe this is what we believe. It is our reality. It is our identity. And we thank you that you've brought us into that. We thank you that you won that for us. With your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, thank you, Lord. Help us to live boldly according to that. Help us to see everything through this, Lord, as we go about life in our families, at our jobs, in our churches, our friendships, all of our relationships, Lord. Help us to remember who we are and what the truth is. Help us to see other people as having infinite value and being precious to you as we interact with them, Lord. Help us to love with that self-giving love that you had, that you walked on earth with, Lord. We thank you for all that you're doing, Lord, and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.